Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This program is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series, featuring David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronoski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as viewers and listeners know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're discussing a recent wave of high-profile violent incidents in the city of Toronto, including on the city's subway system and what may be behind it, and what policymakers ought to be doing to restore a sense of security and safety in the country's largest and most dynamic city. If time permits, we may also cover David's new must-read article for The Atlantic about how the Republican Party has come to be marked by, for the lack of a better term, being jerks and its lessons for Canadian Conservatives. David, thanks as always for joining me. Great to be back. We're speaking on February 2nd, just a day or so ago, a well-regarded CBC editor died after a random assault while walking on a busy street in Toronto. His killer remains at large, and it follows a series of high-profile cases of random assaults and murders, including on the city of Toronto's subway system. You grew up in the city and have plenty of friends and family there. Let's start by just having you reflect on this recent surge of violent crime and how it's affecting the Toronto's residents and those who care about the city. Well... Growing up, I grew up in Toronto in the 60s and 70s, and it was a much smaller city in those days. Um, uh, for me, I, I remember very vividly when the Toronto subway was extended from its previous northern hub of Davisville Avenue to Eglinton Avenue. That made a big difference to me because it was much, it, it meant I could take the Bayview bus, uh, to Eglinton and get on the subway on my own without help from any adult. So that was, that was a smaller town. Um, and of course, Toronto was, was very safe then, and we had, access to American news, and we would contrast Toronto to the other great cities on the Great Lakes, to, to the Detroits, the Buffaloes, the Clevelands, and see how much safer Toronto was. Now, let's start with the good news. Toronto now is a great world city, a great metropolis, uh, one of the most diverse cities in the world. I believe a majority of Torontonians are foreign-born. And it remains, uh, at from the point of view of the very worst crimes, still an incredibly safe city. For all the bad news, I just looked it up, Toronto had 67 homicides. Um, in 2022, um, which is less than it had in 2014, 2015. And we're back to the levels of, of the uh, early 2000s. Um, it's not, uh, you know, the where in a, an ideal world, it would be lower than that. Um, in the very safe days of the 1990s, Toronto would have about 50 homicides a year. Um, but, but 67 is lower than 2014. We are not having a surge of the worst or we're not having a, a, a spasm of the very worst kind of crime. The other piece of good news is that because of the presence of all kinds of camera systems 
Um, both those that are intended to catch people, like assailant of uh, Michael Finley, the CBC documentarian, and those that people have in their doors, that Toronto is now achieving a clearance rate of 80%. That is, of uh, the police are going, if you commit a murder, the police will almost certainly catch you sooner or later. Um, and you'll be punished as you deserve. Um, one more piece of good news, which is um, Canadian policy against guns remains very effective. So of these uh, 67 homicides, fewer than half were gun crimes. Um, and so one of the reasons you have a perception of violence is Canadian pe- Canadians who want to be violent don't have access to guns. And so they use other things that are terrible weapons and do a lot of harm probably turn out not to be lethal. Um, that p- modern hospitals can save you from a very serious knife assault, and they may not be able to save you from a gun assault. But here's what what is worrying and what Canadians um, thinking about Toronto need to take on mind. Um, when people are making a decision, whether to go out for the evening, whether to take their kids to the park, whether they just feel good in their environment, they're not really thinking about homicide. They're thinking about lower level, they're thinking about lower level forms of disorder and threat and discomfort. Are you going to be, are you going to be threatened? Are you going to be intimidated? Is somebody going to pull a knife even if they don't use it? Um, are you going to be spat on by, you know, somebody who's, uh, high on drugs of some kind? That's the thing that is really getting worse in Toronto. Um, and that's partly because of a larger phenomenon that is North America wide, which is we seem to have much more dangerous drugs available than were available 10 years ago. And drugs that create uh, much more aggressive behavior than, I mean, methamphetamines, a person who is taking methamphetamine, it behaves more aggressively to the rest of the world than a person who's taking even as terrible a drug as heroin. Um, Those drugs that were the, the dominant drugs of 10 years ago made people more passive. The dominant drugs of today seem to be making people more aggressive, uh, more violent. And that's what's going on. There's another problem that is going on, which is um, uh, this: uh, cities are having trouble coping with homelessness. And uh, Toronto participated in an intellectual movement and that was very exciting 20 years ago called the housing first approach. Um, and I, when I was in the Bush administration, we, we, we explored this. Uh, I remember uh, the guy who was the, one of the intellectual leaders of it got a job in the Bush administration and a big bunch, bunch of money was put in his hands to try to experiment. And the idea was, and this is, I think, something that a lot of so-called homeless advocates will believe. What, does, what characterizes the homeless? They don't have homes. Uh, if you can get them, you know, a little apartment, and we're not talking about the Beverly Hillbillies here, but if you can get get them a place with with a roof, with a door, with a lock, with a toilet and sink, um, you get them off the streets. And so this was called the housing first approach, and it's been tried in a very big way um, over the past 20 years. In some cases, San Francisco made an especially big commitment to it. San Francisco built enough units um, over the past 20 years to house every one of the uh, people who are homeless in San San Francisco in the year 2011. which is when they really got into this thing. They just, they build enough to every homeless person on the streets in San Francisco. There's a, they, they build a room over the next 10 years and the problem got worse. Um, Toronto still, Toronto's followed this approach and there's still on any given night, 10,000 people on the sleeping on the streets of Toronto or so it's estimated. So what went wrong was uh, what the housing first approach did was it provided very cheap housing to people who are on the cusp of who are economically marginal, but it did not deal with the people who are on the streets because they're not economically marginal. They're there because of mental health issues. They're there because of addiction issues. And as those things have gotten worse over the past decade, even providing these units um, hasn't made much of a difference. Toronto's begun 
uh, to say things like um, it's going to enforce the bylaw against camping in parks. I think that's a good thing. Um, but we, you need to begin by conceptualizing. You do not have a homelessness problem. We have to stop using that word. You have, you have a mental health and addiction problem. And some of the men, not all, but some are violent. Others are victims of violence. Like in this terrible story of the, of, of the man who's Kenny Lee, I believe was his name, who was sleeping on the streets, who was attacked by teenage girls and, and horribly assaulted in a, in a, in a um, and uh, the details are very upsetting. Um, he, he's a victim. Other people like that are perpetrators, but he, ha- he had the same mental health issues that other people who are more violent had. We have to conceptualize that. That's the policy issue. Mental health, substance abuse, not lack of housing. Yeah, let me just ask you to elaborate on those tremendous insights. As you say, David, there's obviously complex, multifaceted factors at play here. You mentioned mental health, homelessness, drug addiction, etc. But is there a role for public policy too? Is there a risk that we've permitted good intentions about seeing these issues through the lens of, say, social policy to cause us to neglect basic responsibilities for law enforcement and public safety? Yeah, no, I, I, I hope I'm, I endorse that. Um, so there are 10,000 people um, sleeping on, on the streets. Um, and as I say, they, they are mixed population. Some of them are potentially violent. Some of them are potentially victims of violence. And you want to have compassion for them and you want to have some safety. But, you know, there are millions of people who need to be able to use the parks. Um, and the, the parks cannot be turned into public toilets. So uh, so you, the, the f- commitment A has to be to public order for the vast majority of people who are um, leading normal lives. You need, you need a subway where they feel secure. And there is a bad tendency, I think, for people to say, well, if you're not an actual victim of violence in a way that really puts your life at risk, then you should stop complaining. So if, if what happened is, is somebody who just seemed kind of off his head, you know, threatened you or snarled at you or spat at you, you have no complaints. Well, people should be able to go live their lives in public um, with a degree of security. And especially as one of the things that marks Toronto, has made Toronto such a great city, is this downtown intensification. So that means people are living in less space than they would do in a more sprawling city, a Houston, a Dallas, a Las Vegas. That means the public domain is ever more important. It maybe doesn't matter if the parks in Las Vegas are made unusable, but it matters in a condo town like Toronto if they are. Um, so those spaces belong to everybody and have to be protected for everybody. And not literally, and they have to be protected above all for the majority who want to use them in the way that they were intended to be built. So start with um, an idea that people are entitled to an expectation of, of public order um, and, and then deal as best you can with the problem of, of the hardcore and except you may not be able to deal with it perfectly, but at least you can protect the great majority from the worst. As you alluded, David, Canada isn't unique in dealing with the surge of violent crime. I'm speaking to you from New York City that's had similar issues over the past several months, including on its own subway system. Uh, do you see any similarities and are there lessons for Toronto uh, from the ebb and flow of crime rates in New York City over the past several decades? Well, New York City remains also a very safe city from the point of view of the headline violent crimes. But New York and especially Manhattan um, is experiencing a, a deterioration of the kind of public order that it had 10 years ago. And that's, that's partly because of external factors that this the drugs are worse. Um, and the, the victims of drugs are, in, are more likely to act out and more likely to be violent and more likely to be on the street. But it's also that there have been policing decisions made 
And I think what, what basically happened, and again, this is not completely crazy. So we probably reached the high watermark of public safety in North America about the year 2010, 2012. Um, and uh, New York, certainly that was probably the safest, safest time probably ever in the history of the city of, of New York, certainly since it became a big city. And um, the burden of law enforcement doesn't fall equally on everybody. Um, it, and so, uh, and the people on whom it falls more unequally raise their voices. And, and, and I think there was a reasonable feeling thinking, you know, it's, things are pretty safe. We can experiment a little bit. Let's, let's de-incarcerate a little, see what happens. Uh, let's take a more permissive approach to um, people sleeping on park benches than we used to do. Um, and let's see what happens. And so some of that tight enforcement that was there from the early 90s to the early 2010s slackened. And th that was an experiment. And I understand why it made. I mean, I wrote at the time articles for the Atlantic saying this experiment is going to end badly, but that was just one man's opinion. Um, I could well have been wrong. And I'm, uh, and maybe I, maybe I was also wrong in my own way, but, uh, it did end badly. And, and I think, uh, everyone now needs to realize, you know what? The policies of the 1990s to the 2010s were within an imperfect set of imperfect alternatives that have costs. This was, this was the, for most people, this was the best setting of the dials you could get. Talking about New York City, in an episode of Hub Dialogues last year, Raihan Salam, the president of the Manhattan Institute and someone you know well, said the following, quote, My view is that violent crime actually engenders a deep suspicion of your neighbors, of people who belong to different groups. You start to think in terms of group categories and group averages in a way that can be very corrosive to the idea of building a successful, vibrant, multi-ethnic society. That's one reason why I'm so zealous about public safety and what violent crime does. In fact, there's so much evidence that actually it would be really pretty darn cost effective to spend a lot more on public safety, unquote. I've been thinking about this a lot in, in recent days, David. One of Toronto's great advantages, of course, and it's among the world's most diverse and pluralistic cities. How much should we think of public safety as an investment in protecting that advantage? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic point. I'll give you a, a pithier and maybe more brutal way of putting it than, than Raihan in his elegant speech did. So, um, in the, between 1960 and 1970, the United States saw an explosion of crime. Um, and just, uh, uh, at the same time as there was a slackening of, uh, if I remember, I've used this number in my book on the 1970s, so I hope I have it right. But despite the manifold increase in crime, there were actually fewer people in prison in the United States in the year 1969 than there had been in the year 1959. And when people want to understand what killed the FDR, LBJ, New Deal coalition, that was it. It was the crime whip. And John Mitchell, who's Richard Nixon's attorney general, famously said in an in in unrecorded interview, in an off-the-record interview, so this country, he said in about 1969-70, is going so far right, you will not recognize it. And, and if you were someone who's on the more liberal side, you should have heeded that. That was true. Um, and uh, that a society that had had this lowercase p progressive approach to all kinds of social problems by 1980, had thrown them all out the window because people didn't feel safe. It, it, a society that felt very safe in 2010 was able to take all kinds of social risks. Um, and some of them didn't play out and some of them did. Um, so if, if you want to have a society based on, yeah, easygoingness, trust, um, you know, not, not looking nervously at different looking people in the subway, make everybody feel safe.
You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. One of the things that's striking in recent years is is actually the exodus out of the city of Toronto. In 2019, the year prior to the pandemic, about 60,000 people left the city, a quarter of them under the age of five. We've spoken previously about how the durability of remote work might change where people live and work. Is there a risk for Toronto and other major centres that growing concerns about crime will only exacerbate those trends? Yeah, I think crime is probably a lesser driver of that than other other things, um, which is, um, you know, and this, this is sort of something that Toronto chose, and it's not a bad thing, which is um, young people live in the city. Um, then they have families, they want more space, um, they want, you know, more walkability. Uh, and so they then move, they used to move to the suburbs, now they move to smaller centers. Then uh, the kids get older and uh, they sell the house and they say, we're going to have some fun and we want to go to a place where there's restaurants and movies and, and they move back. And, I mean, the, those condo, who's living in those condo towers? It's, it's older people. Um, and that's maybe part of the life cycle of how a city works. And maybe it's not, it's not so terrible. So long as you've got housing stock and school stock that allows people to have families in the first place. Um, what, what may be happening in, in Toronto that is worrying is it may be that, um, Younger people are choosing not to have children at all, or only to have one, uh, because they can't have a, they can't buy enough space. Um, so the, s- the solution to that may be more building, um, and but it always includes more public safety. Because if you live in a building, you need the park. And in a city like Toronto, with its weather, uh, the in those precious warm months, you that's people are you're going to be in the park all the time in the good weather because you have to batten down the hatches during the bad weather. And that so that park had better be a place where um, people, parents, especially mothers, feel comfortable bringing very young children. They just feel nothing nothing that they don't want to happen to them is going to happen. And public, public policy has should validate that and say, yeah, I mean, we've got, you know, 40 families here. We've got one person wandering around muttering and looking intimidating. Um, you know, he's not breaking the law exactly, but he's destroying the park. Let me ask one final question on this subject before we move on to your excellent essay this week in The Atlantic. That is on the subject of drugs, which you, you mentioned earlier. In recent months, the province of British Columbia has actually enacted a, a pretty extraordinary policy of drug decriminalization in an attempt to deal with the problems that that province faces with respect to opioids and so on. Just to have you reflect your views on how we ought to think about the balance between recovery, treatment, and enforcement when it comes to dealing with drugs in our major cities in Canada and, and of course, in the United States. Well, I I remain one of the last anti-legalizers. I I used to write about this issue a lot. I I don't so much anymore because it just became apparent to me. Society is making a big experiment. Um, And there's... You're not going to get very far. When, when society makes, sometimes society tries to do something, you say, you know what? Let's see. And um, let's give it, a, it looks like we're going to give it a try that then we're going to learn the hard way. Um, I, I think when we think about how um, 
drug regulation works. Um, that the part of the part of drug control that really does seem foredoomed is the attempt to control the supply. Um, that that uh, that the, the war on drugs approach of destroying sources of drugs, um, all that does is throw your neighboring countries into chaos, um, and it doesn't and raise the price. But it doesn't. Maybe it raises the price. It doesn't really stop the flow because the the ability of the planet to produce drugs is almost infinite. The ability of criminal networks to transport them is almost infinite. Um, the, the the constraint on supply um, has is is not going to be very successful. But you can constrain demand, um, and uh, if cocaine is legal, lots of more people are going to think this is an acceptable thing for us to try than if it's not legal. Um, and uh, that when it's not legal, you, you are, you're making a conscious decision to enter the underworld uh, when you take cocaine. And, and uh, if it's legal, then, you know, just as, uh, you know, it's, it's like any other expensive form of self-harm. People, like people smoke a cigar from time to time. That's self-harming too, but they don't see the harm in it. Um, so, uh, I think the approach to it has been that, that that's why we're getting um, a lot more drug use. Uh, what we're also discovering is the ingenuity of the pharma, of the criminal pharmaceutical world, the ingenuity of the criminal um, agricultural world is they make these drugs more and more potent. Um, and so uh, people are smoking stronger marijuana than these to the, the, the um, they're getting very, very powerful drugs. And it seems to me that the goal should be Deter- discouragement of taking it. The law is part of the process. One of the things that happens when drugs are illegal is um, it allows you, when someone is before a magistrate because they're in a car accident while under the influence, um, that if the drug is illegal, the magistrate has more power to say, look, I'm going to give you a reduced sentence if you agree to go to a treatment program. Um, and if you don't, then we throw the maximum sentence at you. Uh, if, if the drug's legal, the, ju- the magistrate doesn't have that lever, and so you can't get the person into the treatment program. So I don't think we want to make criminals of people, but I think we want to send a clear message that society disapproves. These things are self-harming, um, and we're going to try to suppress demand for it within our society because suppressing the supply is going to be almost hopeless. As we wrap up, let's shift the subject to your article for The Atlantic in which you describe the trend towards, quote, performative obnoxiousness in Republican Party politics. You argue, for instance, that Republican politicians like Ron DeSantis have come to the view that being something of a jerk is important to base voters. Do you think they're right? Or is it possible that they're misreading things? Maybe put differently, is there any market left for a positive aspirational conservatism? Um, I devoutly believe there's a huge potential market for aspirational conservatism. Um, and uh, it's it's waiting to be rediscovered. It's going to take different kinds of issues uh, from the issues that characterize the aspirational conservatism of the 80s and 90s. But yes, I think that uh, what what do people want? They want to have they want to have something their own. They want to have a home. They want to have a stable family. They um, uh, they and they want um, and they don't want to be given it. Uh, they want to have the opportunity to go get it for themselves because that's what makes life worth living. Um, so a conservatism that can identify itself with the aspiration of people to, to make the best of your own one and only life, that's a powerful message. And you're not a victim. You are empowered. You can do things for yourself. We believe in you. Um, you know, that's, look, that's when Americans and Canadians turn to pop psychology. That's the message they, <laughs> you know, the, the, that's the message they want from their pop psychologists. I assume it's the message they want from their politicians. Um, the problem is that a lot of the policy content became obsolete. And so it stopped working. And so then they, uh, 
that conservatives tended to jettison the aspirational wrapping. Um, in the United States in particular, um, conservatives have discovered the power of connecting to feelings of loss and regret and nostalgia. Um, but you can't actually you can't bring back vanished worlds. So you're, 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 and, and the promises are in any way not so specific. So you end up having these, these stupid fights over things like plastic versus paper straws. Um, there, there's a spectacular example of this just, just before you and I spoke yesterday. Um, Ron DeSantis in Florida, um, announced that he was ending the sales tax on gas stoves in the state of Florida because gas stoves have become a big cultural marker in the past week in the United States. And, and conservatives are saying, you know, they have this, this, because there's some, there was a paper on the health hazards of gas stoves and somebody at the Consumer Safety Products, Consumer Product Safety Commission said maybe they should be regulated more strictly. Um, and okay, the liberals want to destroy everything. So DeSantis made this press conference. Now, Florida ties with Maine for having the fewest gas stoves of any state in the United States. Only 8% of Florida homes have uh, cooked with gas. Makes sense. Uh, it's, the ground's really marshy, so you can't bury a pipeline. And there are a lot of hurricanes. Uh, <laughs> so, so you don't want to have, a, you don't want to have a situation where if the appliance comes out of the wall, it spews this uh, inflammable substance everywhere. So Florida, Florida doesn't have gas stoves. The only place that is an exception is up and down the most expensive condos uh, uh, with oceanfront views in Miami. Those places, I looked it up, those places do tend to offer gas as a super luxury item. So what he's doing is as, as this performative populism, he's taking, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks of sales tax off the price of an $8 million oceanfront condo. <laughs> and how is that any kind of pop? But, you know, you're, you're so into your own craziness. Um, but I, I, the more serious example was, uh, and here's this place where I think it really made a difference, is in the Senate rate in Pennsylvania. Where, which featured Mehmet Oz against um, John Fetterman. So Oz was a basically pretty moderate candidate. He got tripped up on abortion because he was trying to play it both ways, but he was obviously not someone who's an anti-abortion warrior. Um, and the first Muslim to get a major party nomination for a U- U.S. Senate seat. Um, and although he had a rather disgraceful career as a TV pitchman in the middle of his career, in his early years, he was a once upon a time, a really important, great doctor. Um, and so it was not crazy that this guy would go on to the Senate. Um, his opponent had a stroke. And there was a moment where this guy who had had this kind of shameful career as a TV pitchman could have said something compassionate. Could have said, you know, I wish my opponent well. Um, you know, I, I have dealt with stroke patients. And, you know, I, I think the prognosis for his recovery is excellent. Um, and, uh, you know, I look forward when, when he's ready to meeting him, his formidable intellect on a debate stage anytime he wants. But of course, he needs to take his own time. But if elected, of course, he can do the job. He shouldn't be elected because he's wrong on taxes and wrong on spending and wrong on this and that. Um, instead, he, he, Oz acted like a total jerk in a, in, in a state, Pennsylvania, with a lot of people with health problems. He lost by four points. I don't know that he wouldn't, that he, that a, a nice Oz would not have won that race. David, I'm in my early 40s. Do you remember the kind of adolescent novels, uh, choose your own adventure novels, where you would read through the book and at a certain point, you'd be asked to choose to go to one page to continue the plot line a certain way or another page to continue the plot line another way. And of course, what you would do is you'd go back and read the alternative plot when you were finished. I wish we had that ability to carry out our politics. Uh, the case that I have in mind is J.D. Vance's Senate run in the state of Ohio, where 
he had two paths, it seems to me, the path of hillbilly elegy, which reflects some of the, the message and themes that you were talking about, personal responsibility, rejecting the, the idea that we're victims and so on. And of course, the path that he ultimately took to secure the endorsement of former President Trump and, and to kind of turn himself into something of a, a Trumpian candidate. I, I would have loved to be able to run those two campaigns in parallel because I have this sneaking suspicion that the hillbilly elegy version would have been equally successful and actually would have positioned Vance to be more than he'll ultimately become in the Senate. I, I, I say that against a backdrop, which just in the past day or so, he's already endorsed Donald Trump's 2024 presidential run. Yeah, right. We can do with, a, I go through a lot of these cases. I mean, one of the things that, um, one, one of the big Republican super PACs uh, got a lot of money um, to run billboards in swing states with, with messages that were just, uh, you know, childishly trolling, um, you know, uh, climate justice uh, for pregnant men. Um, and the idea was, that's what the Democrats think. Don't you hate that? And, and of course, it was a total failure because uh, first people didn't get it because you, you, you had to be super highly online even to know what they were talking about. Um, and, and second, it, you know, it, it doesn't answer uh, the question, like if I'm the swing voter is not, is, it's just not that connected to politics. And they want to know, well, what do I, you, they, they may vote on cultural appeals, but they're going to be pretty basic cultural appeals. Um, the swing voter is someone who doesn't like politics, is disconnected from it. Uh, and one of the ways I always try to understand the swing voter is so we're talking on the 2nd of February. I just learned that on February the 12th is the Super Bowl. And I just looked up the teams that are in it. And now I know the names of the teams that are in, in it, but I can't name any of the players. And I have no opinion about which team should be in. I think, okay, I need to remember the way I think about the Super Bowl, which is I learned about 10 days out when it's going to be and who's in it, is the way most people, or at least the people you most need to talk to, think about elections. So, so I think what would get me, you know, to care about the Super Bowl, it wouldn't be like trolling comments about one team or the other. I wouldn't understand what they were talking about. <laughs> but if they say, you know, cheer for team A and you get free wings, then I think about it. <laughs> Let me end with a question about the application of your thesis to the state of Canadian conservative politics. Canadian conservatives, at least at the federal level, are in op opposition, which can inherently lead to a degree of negativity and oppositionalism. What would be your advice to resist those temptations? Yeah, I, I, I was the same advice we've given when we've talked about this before, the job of an opposition party in a Westminster system is to be ready. Um, and it is, it is to understand that the government has begun to, has taken its first, the day the government is elected is the first step on its path to ultimate defeat. But the, the, the um, root of defeat, it, you do not know. You have, don't have much control over it, but you, even if you could control it, you can't predict it. Um, so you're, the job of the opposition party is to be ready. And that means building a party structure. That means recruiting candidates, getting money. And it means always focusing on being the acceptable government in waiting to be elected by an issue to be decided later that you have no idea of. Um, you know, we, we, an example of this um, Canadian politics is I think the present federal conservatives thought they would be elected by inflation. Um, and probably by the time Canadians vote, uh, inflation is going to have subsided very dramatically. You don't, you didn't want to overinvest in the inflation 
narrative. It might not be the issue on people's minds. But what you can do is at every stage, you know, in, a, in no system do you want 100% of the vote. Only fascists aspire to 100% of the vote. Um, you want either in a two-party system, you want your 51%. You want your, the majority. In a multi-party system, you want your plurality. But you're always seeking to expand your coalition. You know who your core voters are, and you need to keep them happy. But you can't let them run the show. Uh, because you need the uh, additional voters. And so that means, I mean, I, one of the greatest, I think one of the Canadian politicians who had the most to learn, did the most to teach the world is J- Jason Kenney, when he was, especially when he was in federal politics, where he just said, I am going to every wedding, every bar mitzvah, every christening, everything. Um, and uh, I am showing people I care. Uh, I'm showing people I understand them. I'm showing them they are important to me. I'm showing them they, bl- they are welcome in our party. We want them. Um, and he just had this deep message of acceptance. He never got 100% of the vote. But uh, two things happened. One is he got more of the vote than he otherwise would. And he also made sure that some of the people who voted against him weren't that weren't super motivated. They had no anger about it. They were not rallying their friends and family, make sure we all have to drive together to the polls to stop this nightmarish future. Now, don't agree with him about the taxes and the spending, but I can live with them. He, he certainly seems to like me. That's That's the beginning. Just show... Um, one last comment on this, and I've always thought this is a true wisdom. So in uh, the American election of 1936, um, the Republicans nominate, I'm forgive me, I may have told the story on this hub before, but I'm going to tell it again if I have. Uh, the, um, the Republicans nominate Alf Landon, governor of Texas, uh, of Kansas, and FDR's campaign manager, the postmaster general, James Farley, in some speech refers to him as the governor of a typical Midwestern state. Not so harsh. But FDR sends him an excoriating letter when she said, whenever you speak about any group of people, you must use a positive adjective. If you had said, governor of one of our splendid prairie states, <laughs> there would have been no problem. But coming from a New Yorker, anything, especially anything that seems derisive, and I think that's, that's, that's good advice for everybody. You know, uh, and I would say for liberals and Democrats, whenever you're, you're talking about any group that you don't like, White males. One of our splendid white males. That's, that's, that's what FDR would do. Um, just remember, compliments, just compliments, because a, a large part of politics is, we talked about gas stoves before, turning down the pressure on the people who are against you. Um, making them feel like, you know what, I, I can, don't love it, I can live with it. And that gives you a better position to govern from because you have more, uh, you, you encounter less ferocious opposition. It gives you a chance at winning their vote the next time if you do a good job. And it's just genuinely, generally leads to less heat in society. Well, that's a good place to end this conversation. Tremendous insights as always. David Frum, I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of From Dialogues. And I, I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Me too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. 
The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.